Last week, we began our summer preaching series on the Ten Commandments. And we began not with the first commandment, but just with sort of a warm-up, getting us used to the idea of commandments, because we acknowledge the reality that rules, well, rules don't sit particularly well with any of us. They infringe upon our expected freedom to be exactly who and what we want to be to do exactly whatever it is that we want to do. But a core belief of our faith is that God has created us to be in relationship with God's self and in relationship with other people who are also made in the image of God. And we know that all relationships come with expectations, come with boundaries for their good, full, flourishing, yeah, just existence. God offers the Ten Commandments to God's people as a framework for finding true freedom and the purpose of our creation. That as we nurture a healthy relationship with our Creator and other people who have been made in that Creator's image, we would find that truly this is good. This is what we were made for. As we heard again today, God reminds those who listen that God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them out of the land of slavery and desires to bring them into freedom. But just leaving Egypt isn't true freedom. Rather, true freedom can only be found as people realize that they can live rightly and well. That they can experience goodness and life in a new land and wherever they are because they have a relationship with the God who sets people free. This is who God says that God is. This is part of this first commandment. So this week we now dive into it. Commandment one. Now, what commandment is actually the first commandment is a matter of some debate. Who knew that counting to ten could be controversial? But somehow in the church, we managed to make even this controversial. And so the tradition of the Jewish people and the church both agree that there are ten words, ten commands, which God speaks to God's people, but they're not numbered in the text. And so where one thing ends and another begins is up for debate. And we have chosen to follow the order that, tr that is traditionally followed by the Jewish community and which our practice of the Reformed Church has also acknowledged, which places these verses we heard today not as prologue, but in fact as the first commandment. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This seems simple enough, but within this simple command is the foundation for all the other commandments. If we rightly understand this instruction from God, all the rest comes naturally. If we have no other gods before God, then we have no need to make for ourselves any idols. If we have no other gods before God, then when we feel anger, we will not feel that it gives us the right to kill and mar the image of God in another person. Or we will not feel that our lust usurps the goodness of God's design for our sexuality. 
or we will not feel that what our neighbors have, which we do not have, in any way diminishes God's goodness and provision to us. God and God alone will be our God. This command would soon be the inspiration for one of the most important prayers of the Jewish faith called the Shema. Shema means listen or hear, and so that is just the way the prayer begins. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And then Deuteronomy continues by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This, Jesus will later say, is the greatest commandment. So it makes sense that it should come first, first before anything else, and as the foundation for all the other instructions which God offers, is the simple truth that God is God, and no other gods should be before him. This instruction would be especially poignant for the people of Israel leaving Egypt. They're leaving a place of many gods, a place where There was a pharaoh who was seen as the son of Ra, and they will soon meet many new neighbors who worship still other gods. And they have seen how the gods of Egypt blessed and protected that nation, how their worship seemed to have real power in their lives and in the life of Egypt, how even the magicians of Pharaoh's court seemed to duplicate some of the miracles of Moses and of Israel's God. They lived in a world of many gods, all of whom seemed to have power within the world, whose worship had tangible results. And the first thing that they're told as they leave Egypt is a reminder that Egypt's gods had no interest in their freedom, had been used to try to keep them enslaved. But this God had overcome all of those gods, and set Israel free. God says, you don't need your neighbor's gods. You can leave Egypt's gods back in Egypt because I am the Lord your God. One note, which I neglected to mention last week, is that when God says you in these commandments, the word is singular, which is weird. Because so often in the Bible, you is a plural you. Like God or the biblical authors are saying, you all. But here, God is speaking to each one that listens. And so we can be sure these words of God are not just for the collective of the nation of Israel, but continue to be addressed to each you that hears them fresh today. God says to you and to me, you shall have no gods before me. This is good to know because we also live in a world of many gods. The goodness of diversity and multiculturalism also mean that there are many religions present in our city and in our daily lives. And we see how devotion to these other religions and other gods produces some amount of goodness in the lives of other people. Some of us may even suggest that all of these gods are simply other names for the one God, and so it is of no consequence what our neighbors worship, or indeed the God that we choose to worship. We may say that we're here today simply because we've been raised in this tradition, or this is the way of relating to God which is most comfortable for us. 
but we could just as easily see ourselves in another context, seeking the divine by some other means. Or perhaps we're following Jesus, but some of the spiritual interests of our culture catch our imaginations and inspire our hearts from time to time. Maybe we enjoy considering our horoscope and genuinely believe to some degree that the powers which govern the stars may govern our lives as well. They may indeed, if we allow them to. But God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. So we too are challenged as God speaks to us personally and directly. We also don't need our neighbor's gods, don't need the powers which govern the stars to govern our lives, don't need crystals for spiritual healing. We don't need any of the prevailing religious ideas from our culture, and we don't need any powerful principality to work in our lives, because God is the Lord our God. What God is saying in this commandment, I think, is really interesting because God doesn't say all the other gods aren't real. God doesn't say, I am the only God. These things may be true, but it's not the approach that God takes. There are certainly powers and principalities in the world, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, and to any person, to any mortal, these things may seem as if they are gods as well. Gods with power to influence our lives and our world. Rather, God's approach is markedly different, gentler, relational. God says, you will have no other gods before me. God doesn't start a debate about whether or not Baal is real or if Pharaoh is really the son of Ra. Instead, God offers an invitation to a certain kind of relationship one where we choose to worship this God alone. The scholar of Hebrew literature, Robert Alter, says that the phrase before me in this commandment literally means upon my face and could be generally translated as in my presence, in my sight. Before me is not about ranking or hierarchy. God isn't saying, I come first, and after me, well, I don't really care. Put whoever you want after me. Rather, as God is saying, you will have no other gods before me. God is saying, you'll not have gods before me, or beside me, after me, or getting in the way of me, or anywhere near me. God's saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who came to you in your time of need. I am the God who rescued you from the impossible situation you found yourself in. I am the God who cares for you because I created you and I know you. I have brought you out of all of your trouble. I am for you and for your good. I am enough for you. You don't need your neighbor's gods. You don't need the gods which govern the stars that you were born under. You don't need any other gods than me because what I'm doing is more than enough for you. What I'm doing and who I am is all that you'll ever need. Doesn't this commandment sound a lot more like good news when we think about it like that? 
God is telling us that we can get rid of all our other gods, all of our religious junk and baggage. We can get it out of God's face because it's not helping anyone, least of all us. The passage we heard from Acts 17 today is undoubtedly one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And there's so much that I would love to say about it that I love to talk about pretty much any time anyone will listen to me. But this morning, I just want to consider the state of Greek religion as Paul speaks to the Areopagus. They've got a God for everything. God's for war and the harvest. God's for birth and for death. God's for love. And as we heard, an altar to an unknown God. Paul is right when he says that they are extremely religious in every way. They absorb the gods of every people who they encounter. The 4th century bishop of Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom, writes, they had received some of their gods from their fathers, others from the neighboring nations, such as the Scythians or the Thracians and the Egyptians. What did they do then? They erected an altar and inscribed it with the words, to an unknown god, in order to signify through the inscription, if by any chance there is another God who is still unknown to us, we will worship him too. See their immoderate superstition. The Athenians, there are people who are wise enough to hedge their bets. If they say yes to every God that they meet, surely no God could be offended. But what if there's a God they haven't heard of yet? Well, we'll worship that God too. But for now, we'll call that God unknown. And what Paul tells them is that they had it backwards. They're not in danger of offending any God by not accepting every God. Rather, they're in danger of offending the only God by worshiping everything that they don't need to worship. They thought they'd covered all their bases, but Paul comes to them and says, this altar, this unknown God, this is the only God you'll ever need. This is the God that ends wars and causes every harvest. This is the God by whose decree we know birth and death, love and redemption. This is the God who has watched over every nation who has inspired every spiritual longing of every culture and religion. This is the God who sets all people free and who has now made himself fully known in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the only God that you need. During his earthly ministry, Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to have no other God before God. And in him, we are offered the opportunity to love God more deeply, to see how God has given us a new Passover, no longer freed from the chains of Egypt, but now freed forever from the chains of sin and of death. Jesus breathes new life into this commandment for all those who would follow him. It is as if he says by his life, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of darkness and into my marvelous light. You shall have no other gods before me. And indeed we shall not, for we have no need of them. 
the powers which govern the darkness which we once knew, which we were once so comfortable within, offer us no benefit in the light of Christ's life or in the kingdom to which we are being called. This commandment is really quite wonderful because it not only begins the Ten Commandments, it's not only the foundation for all of our good living, but it also points us toward the end of all things, the purpose of all creation, the kingdom which we were made for and the city that we long for. In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, The author writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and he himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Then a little while later, the author records what he sees of this home of God among mortals in this new city of God. And he writes, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. You shall have no other gods before me. This commandment points us toward the day when God will sufficiently meet all of our needs, when God will be nearer to us than anything we can imagine and will comfort us in all of our sorrow, when we who long to gather in sanctuaries in order to know God's presence will find that God himself is our new sanctuary in every place where we go. And when we who long for light to break into this world or who really just enjoy a good sunny summer day discover that the Lord is our light and our lamp. One day, God will be our temple and our light, our comfort and our help in every place and in every way. And until that day, we have the example of Christ who suffered even as we suffer but found that his father was sufficient for all of his needs. If we follow this commandment, if we have no gods in the presence of the Lord our God, we will discover the first tastes of that great and glorious day when we will dwell with him in the city that he is building and experience life as we were created to enjoy it. Dear friends, God is the Lord your God who has borne all your troubles and delivered you from evil and is even now setting you free. You shall not have any other gods in his presence because the Lord is all that you need. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's our practice to leave a little bit of space for silence, for prayer, for reflection, if you're at home for journaling or for conversation, and questions that you can carry with you through the week. And so I invite you to reflect on a couple of things. First, how has God been a source of comfort and help in your life? What are the Egypts God has rescued you from? And give thanks to God in prayer that God is enough for you. And then secondly, what other gods do you try to drag into the presence of God with you? Pray that your love for God would increase 
and he would take joy in having no other gods before God. We'll leave a couple of minutes for you to pray and reflect on these things.